Institute of World Mission podcast. You're listening to the show for Adventist cross-cultural mission enthusiasts. My name is Alex Ott, and together with the IWM team, we invite you to join us today. This podcast is a production of the Institute of World Mission brought to you with support of the General Conference Missions family of ministries and services. Today we're exploring a topic that is quite critical for every missionary family. The question we're asking is, is there a place in mission for the accompanying spouse? In the past, a term trailing spouse has been used in mission circles. But we at IWM don't quite like this term. That's why I'm using here a different phrase, the accompanying spouse. The point, however, is that it's the whole family that moves to another country. And yet many times one spouse has the official call and the other decides to join in, and they go as a family. We strongly feel that the Holy Spirit calls everyone in the family for specific circumstances and has a mission for both spouses. Question is, how can you, who may not have a full-time job lined up for you, or any job for that matter, how can you, who don't have a job description, have a real mission in your host community? Today's interview will help us explore this need a little more. I'm privileged to speak with Gwen Asselford today. Gwen has most recently served as a hospital chaplain and a bereavement manager for a hospice. In that capacity, Gwen would give support to families after death of a loved one for a period of up to 13 months through one-to-one counseling and advising. In her ministry, Gwen spent 13 years in Kenya, five years working for a non-government organization developing clinics for Maasai people, and then as a chaplain the recent four years. At this very moment, Gwen is transitioning to the mission field once more, and again as an accompanying spouse, waiting to know what the Holy Spirit has in store for her. Gwen, welcome to the Institute of World Mission podcast. Thank you. I appreciate your invitation. Would you please share with our listeners a bit of your cross-cultural ministry background? Absolutely. Uh, In the beginning, I went out to Africa. My husband had a call. Ended up in East Africa for 13 years in the country of Kenya. And after that, um, returned back to the States for a few years. And then I started working for an NGO that specifically serves the Maasai tribe in Kenya. Um, My position with that NGO was to put together medical and dental teams to do bush clinics for the Maasai. So we did clinics in very remote areas. I did that for, as I said, five years. And now I'm about to go back out to the same land, to Kenya again. I was just going to ask, so you and your husband James are about to move to Kenya. What's this call all about? Once again, my husband's the person that has the official call from the church. Uh, James will be the executive director for ADRA Kenya, and I'm going with no call. Well, thank you for mentioning that, because this is exactly what we're going to be talking about in this episode. The primary question that we're asking ourselves is, is there a place and mission for the accompanying spouse, and how to find it? The reality is many times one spouse gets the call and the other simply follows. 
the months and years following relocation to a host country can be quite uncertain for the accompanying spouse, to say the least. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Now, how had this been for you when you went to Kenya the first time? Can you share a little bit with us? Mm. I went out with two babies. My son was not quite two and a half, and my daughter had just turned one-year-old just days before we arrived in Kenya. So I didn't work the first year, um, and I thought, what am I going to do? My time was filled very quickly with all the things that you have to do in a foreign country, um, sorting rice, there were rations for water, there were a lot of different things that I had to do, but my interest was in the Maasai that lived on the hill beside, behind the school where we were. It was a, there were five manyatas, which are the mud huts, and there were five women, so those houses represented those five women, but uh, several men. And I was so interested in them. And it's interesting, I believe God equips us ahead of time for what we're going to need in the future. And I looked back and realized that in 10th grade in high school, I was able to join a class, an anthropology class, that actually studied the Maasai. And I hadn't put the connection together until we arrived in the field and there were these Maasai people living right behind us. So that's where my interest went very quickly. All right, so I see. Um, You've come and you actually noticed those people. Despite the business and all that, you looked around and and you saw those five families, those five um, houses. Uh, So what happened next? Uh, I would watch them walk past our the back of our house daily down to haul water. Um, the women and girls have indentations actually in their skull where the leather straps go that ho- carry the that are attached to the containers for them carrying water. And so I started noticing the women take care of the the cattle. They milk the cows in the morning. They take care of the children. They chop the firewood. They haul the water. Um, they provide all of this basis for for the family unit, and it's hard work. So I started going up the hill with my children and just being with those women. It was very interesting. Unless we had a translator, there was no communication. I never learned their language well. I would, could speak some words, but I never learned it well. So if I didn't have a translator, then we spent a lot of time laughing. Uh, I would point to something or they would point to an object and then they would try to get me to speak it or to say it in their language and I would try to do the same in English. So we just started building a companionship, time together, Um, women with children, that was a commonality, and then being able to laugh with one another was another situation. And the more I spent time with them, I knew their names. I knew which children belonged to which mother. Um, With a translator, I learned more of the stories. So I asked questions about them, about their life, and got to go a little deeper. Now, what you did, uh, first you observed, this is what I'm hearing from you, you observed a little bit uh, about their lifestyle and what they do and how hard they work. Then you try to go out every day and, and, and mingle with, with those women. Uh, how much time would you spend on, on this mingling and communicating with them? I would say 30 minutes was the least amount of time that I would spend at a time. Um, it, That's I, daily? 
Um, not necessarily daily, but multiple times throughout the week I would go up and easily spend an hour. It just depended on what we got lost into with one another. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was interesting. I arrived in the field in August, and it wasn't until December that I really was accepted in. Something happened in December. But I'm going ahead of the story if I tell you that bit. No, go ahead. So uh, when did you say you came there? August. In August. August to September. Four months of this of this talking back and forth, trying to talk with, with the ladies. But please go ahead with the story. So while I was building this relationship with the women, um, sometimes the babies would have a fever or they would have a minor cut or something would happen. So I would bring my little medical kit up mm-hmm. and help them out with these situations. And this continued to enrich the trust between us. Even though, again, we couldn't speak, there was trust being built. They knew I was investing my care, my heart, my life, my time with them. One of the women cut her finger very severely. Again, she was cutting wood. She was going to build a new manata. And with the um, panga, really did a bad job on her thumb. So they came to me. And I felt immediately this is a really big situation, way over my head. But I just prayed, and I did my best, and continued to bandage it. So for every two days about, I would have her come down. We would change the bandage. Um, I followed the progress of it. One day she showed up at my house. Uh, It was lunchtime. I remember my family. We were around the table eating, and she showed up for me to change it. And I cut the bandage off, and I thought, Oh, I just felt sick to my stomach and wondered what had I done because the thumb was very white, um, it was very wet looking, it just looked abnormal. Mm-hmm. And it worried me. I thought I had done something terribly wrong and, and that was infected or something. So I had her just stay with us um, for some minutes, and the longer the bandage was off, the better it began to look. And finally, I realized it was looked like that just because it had been bandaged for so long, um, and it just needed air to dry out, and it healed. It was um, it looked wonderful. There were never any complications, and that was a breaking point. Before we go in there, just uh, uh, one short question. Uh, did you have any medical background, any nursing background? No, none at all, okay. none. Just simple, um, keeping it clean, right. doing the best that I could. And years later, um, a mission doctor actually took me beside him, and as he would come out and do quick mission clinics, he would then stock a box for me of um, antibiotics, of um, simple medications that I might need. And he taught me which antibiotics to use in which situation. He gave me suturing material. Uh, so he supplied a little box for me in later years and kept me going that we were able to do even a little deeper medical right. care. So what I'm hearing so far, Gwen, is that you came, you observed, you really wanted to, to be around those ladies, and you did that multiple times a week. You went out, you started meeting them, really mingling with them then saw a few things you can help with, and you mm-hmm. did that. And uh, and this brought, you said, to a tipping point. And yes. This brought you somewhere. So w- w- what's that? So I just want to emphasize willingness. Just mm-hmm. be willing to be with them. Be willing to, to, to care for the need that comes mm-hmm. to you. After I had cared for Soyette's thumb and they saw that I was in it for the long haul with them, 
Then on Christmas morning, I went up after our family had opened our gifts at home. My children, again, little. Um, I went up that morning just to visit them for a few minutes, and they invited me inside one of the manatas for the very first time, and they cooked tea for me. So that was the real statement of now they had trust in me. They valued me as a friend, and I had been invited in. Now, um, so that our listeners can really appreciate what you have just shared, a lot of people will not have uh, the, the, the needed background to Africa. Uh, can you explain the significance of being invited to somebody's home? Because this, around the world, it happens very quickly. Uh, what's the significance of that? So the significance is um, the gift of hospitality. And when you're granted hospitality like that, especially invited into one of their homes, um, they are trusting you. They are counting you as a part of their group. Um, so and that doesn't happen quickly. Though. No, no. And it's interesting. They had a real fear. I didn't learn this until many, many years later. They explained to me that in the early days, they had a fear of the white person. And um, even in their background, they had told their children, or maybe they had been told when they were children, be careful of the white people, they'll take you as a child. I had no clue. They never explained that to me in the beginning. So they were very cautious um, about letting me close to them. And to go into their home meant that you ducked down and went into this very dark, smoky place. And I sat on a wooden three-legged stool, and they heated the water over a fire, put the pot on three stones, um, heated the water, and then with their hands scooped some sugar in, scooped some tea leaves in, and then would stir with their fingertips and then let it sit and boil. And So you're in this very smoky, dark environment. Um, and it's hot, and you're already warm because it's, this is December, we're below the equator, it's summertime. But I wouldn't have left that place for anything. It was a wonderful, special honor to be with them there and then to drink the tea. A moment of acceptance. Absolutely. So how did that shape your mission further, Gwen? Because uh, what, you've sh- what you have shared so far is you wanted to do something so badly. And what that meant for you is to really connecting with the local women around you. And uh, you know, we've, we've shared all the steps it took. How, how did that experience and then others shape your, uh, the future of your mission? When I saw how hard the women worked, Um, Their babies would get sick. One of the babies even died while I was there in the early years with them. And I wanted them to know that the life they were currently living was not the life that God had intended for them. Um, And so I wanted to start a, a branch Sabbath school under the trees and had a felt set that I had brought with me And with the permission of Mze, the head of the family, then I was allowed to show the children, teach the children just simple Bible stories. And it was interesting, in the beginning, the children only would come. The women would sit back a ways, and the men even further back and just observe what I was doing. And this was even after they had invited me in, had accepted me as a friend. This was a next step for them to watch and see what was my intent 
Um, and so I taught the children. They learned Bible stories. And as time went by, the women came closer and closer until the women were mingling with the children and learning the stories, too. Uh, and we had fun. Again, laughter, singing, telling the stories, having pictures, using felts, as many visuals. But I also used the things around me to tell the stories. If the story had a mountain in it, we'd point to the gong hills and talk about that. If it had goats or cows, we talked about that. So I incorporated items that were in their world in the stories that I was telling. How much time, Gwen, has passed between uh, your arrival to the country and the moment when you were able to start the Sabbath school, this children's Sabbath school? I'd say it was close to a year before I was able to do the Sabbath school. Okay. So they watched for a long time. And then it was m- months after that, many months after that, um, and the women asked me one Sabbath, they said, we would like you to have church with us. We want to start keeping the Sabbath. Will you have church with us every Sabbath, and will you preach to us? And I just, that was the next step of my growth because I had never preached before. I was really a shy person. When I ended up in Kenya, um, there, in many ways I was hampered going out into the public because of my shyness. So for them to ask me to be a pastor, to preach a sermon, just put butterflies in my stomach. I almost felt sick, and I thought, Lord, I don't know how to do this. I've never done anything like that. You're going to have to be in control. But you were willing to do this because they asked. They Something asked. Something that came from them. That's right. So I just kept praying about it and praying about it. And finally, one afternoon, I saw out my kitchen window a little boy running along the edge, and he was very clearly looking for something. And then a few seconds behind him were some of the women. They were looking for something. And so I stepped out my back door to see what was happening, and there was a big bush between them up higher on the hill and myself down lower. And in that bush was a goat eating away. So I realized this little herds boy had brought all the goats in for the evening, and they realized one was missing. So the boy was sent back out to look for it. The mothers came back out to look for that one missing goat. And I thought, oh, God, you are so good. There's my sermon, the sermon about the lost sheep. They would understand the one that was lost and the shepherd going out and looking for it. And that was the very first sermon I ever preached with them and for them. What happened with this goat? I I mean, I just have to ask. So I called the child down the hill, and he came running down towards me. And when he got lower, he could see the goat that was actually in the bush. And he started laughing, and he picked the goat up. So you found it. I saw the goat. I could see where it was. I could see the whole thing happening on the hillside. So he came down, saw the goat, started laughing, picked it up, and was, was hollering to the women up above. And they came down, and everybody was laughing. They were so happy and that it was yeah. right there, and it was in my backyard, essentially. Just going to so be better, huh? No. It, God ordained all the way around. So they carried the goat, the little boy carried the goat back to um, back into the, the corral, and everything was good, and I knew what my sermon was going to be, and that's how it began. That was your first one? That was my first sermon. And from there, um, every Sabbath, we started then holding, we would do up on the hillside first, under the tree, um, continuing to do little Sabbath schools, and then would have some type of a, a service, um, a sermon with them. And again, always using something in their life that they could 
understand um, what the story was about and what Jesus. So I followed the life of Jesus, and that was we spent a year on just that, and that was how the beginnings of teaching them. Gwen, many people think of mission as being a pastor, being a teacher, being a physician, a doctor. You go and you you have this honorable job. What I'm hearing from you today is that your mission started the very first day with when you were looking outside the window or whatever that was mm-hmm. with intent and looking in the faces of these women, mingling mm-hmm. with them. And that's when your mission started. And a few months later, it resulted in these opportunities. But it started way before just being willing to serve them and, and, and really be around them. Um, how would you feel about this, uh, this kind of... Uh, Assessment, Absolutely. And I think it's Christ's model. Coming to these people with a heart for them, for care and concern for them, fulfilling their needs, medical needs, feeding them, whatever that might be, caring for their needs, establishing trust, and then allowing them to go deeper and to understand their need of Jesus. Thank you. Now, how did that become a foundation, this whole experience with uh, Maasai women? How, how did this become a foundation for your uh, ministry in the coming months and years? Um, about two years into it, we had a group of five Maasai that asked to be baptized. And so then we had to now we've gone from just under the tree to needing to connect to a local uh, union, conference, church group. So we connected with them, and it became then this, this was one of my difficult points, um, a heartache area. The question was, could these women be baptized with their jewelry on? And for me, it was a non-issue. Baptize them. This is beautiful. This is in God's doing, his work. But the local church, jewelry is not an accepted part of the local church. And so a lot of conversation took place at a totally different level outside of the Maasai um, about what was right and what was wrong in this and what could be allowed. And in the end, by explaining and talking over the issue that the Maasai wear their jewelry for a purpose. One necklace signifies a woman is engaged, another that she's married, um, If a woman has just had a baby, she wears a specifically shaped belt even. So their jewelry wasn't just for adornment, but had purpose in it. So what I'm hearing from you is that you were engaged now at this level in contextualization and and helping the people make some decisions in the church as well. Um, I understand that out of this, uh, a whole people movement emerged. Can you talk just a little bit about how, how this spread? So from those initial five that were baptized, um, it spread incredibly. We started holding um, weekend seminars or, we would, or outreaches in different areas, and we had people literally coming to find us and say, please come to our village. We want to hear more. And the need was greater than we had people to be able to go out and to preach in the different areas. What has grown out of that movement is that there are three NGOs, non-government organizations, that are registered in the country of Kenya um, that work specifically for the Maasai and Seventh-day Adventist organizations or NGOs that work with an Adventist bent for the Maasai. We have two girls' rescue centers where girls are rescued from being sold into early marriage or from going through um, FGM 
So we've got two centers that are for that. We have multiple Maasai churches and schools also resulting from the work with these five people. Isn't it amazing to hear? Incredible. Gwen, I heard you say this, that your husband had a call, but God allowed you to have a mission. That's right. Um, what gave you confidence to go through this process and, uh, and, and take the next step? Always take the next step. What gave you this confidence to do that? I think that it was seeing the work of God. These things were n- not accomplished by me or um, other missionaries. This was God making these things happen. It was an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And that's what gave me courage to go beyond my abilities. I do have one last question, and this is, uh, this is the following. If you were to give actionable advice, highly practical tips to uh, our listeners, what would you say they can do today and maybe in the coming weeks and months to find their very own ministry, their own cross-cultural mission? I'd say watch, look around you, see what interests you, what is being stirred in your heart. And then as you watch people, um, put yourself in proximity to them. Ask, begin to ask questions gently. Have no agenda. Just want to get to know them. And as you begin to know them, then you'll see where the needs are. And if they allow, and in time, don't rush things, but in time, begin to fulfill those needs in ways that you're able to do. Don't create dependencies. Create friendships and um, honor that. And then see where God will take it and be willing to do things that you've never done before. Step out of your comfort zone. Thank you. Now you're going back to Kenya. So this, is, this is another place in life. You and your husband James are going, uh, following a mission call. Um, what do you think is ahead of you there? You're going to be in the city now. It's a totally different environment. Um, it will be very different. Yes. Uh, I will not have the Messiah in my backyard to watch and to go and sit with. I am going without the call. He has the call. So I'm going with a complete open mind and an expecting spirit. I'm just going to go and see, wait and watch, uh, and to see. I don't know if it will be a continuation of working with the Maasai or if I will have a different mission. God will reveal it, and I'm excited about that, just going not knowing. When I know for sure that there are many missionary families where one spouse has a call and the other does not, if there were people out there um, wanting to talk with you, uh, maybe just get to know your story a little more, maybe get some advice from you, how could they contact you? Thank you for asking. Uh, I'd be willing for them to have my email address. Let me spell that for you. Uh, I'll say it first. It's gwenasselford at gmail.com, G-W-E-N-A-S-T. L E F O R D at gmail.com. Excellent. Gwen, thank you very much. Thank you for asking and inviting me. Now, dear listener, I trust your heart is on fire, as is mine, as I can see the work of the Holy Spirit in Gwen's life. Now, let's take this work with the guidance, with support, and in partnership with Jesus one step further couple things we can do. First, 
Let's dialogue. We will appreciate you helping answer this question. How can an accompanying spouse find their very own mission? Let me repeat the question. How can an accompanying spouse find their very own mission? Please respond in a way that is convenient to you, but please do respond. If you are on IWM Online Learning and Support Community and will see this episode posted there with this question, please respond in the comments. In several weeks, we are launching a renewed IWM website. Every episode page will have a dedicated commenting section at the bottom. You will be able to easily give your input in that space in the future. For now, it's the IWM Online Learning and Support Community and or simply email me at otta at gc.adventist.org. So here's the question again. We do want to discuss this. We need your input. And the question to answer together as a community is this. How can an accompanying spouse find their very own mission? Help us take this conversation further. Number two. If you know someone who will appreciate hearing this interview, please bring it to their attention. It can be your spouse, a friend, or an acquaintance and mission. In this work, we rely on your very personal recommendations. Recommendations that are full of care and love for somebody you do care about. Next week, it will be the 13th episode. It will be fully different in format and style. This episode will mark an end of a quarter, 13 weeks, you know. We Adventists like doing things in quarters. Anyways, I decided to provide an overview and a bit of context to the future of IWM podcast and other related activities. At the Institute of World Mission, we are passionate about serving you in the mission field. We want to be your trusted partners. We'll talk about this next week in more details. Stay tuned. You'll not want to miss next week's episode. I'm Alex Ott, and we'll be happy to see you.